Good morning, and let me uh, ask you now to please open your Bibles to the book of Genesis. Should be easy to find. The first book. And by the way, there is so much in these early chapters of Genesis that escape our culture. To say that is, is really speaking... Uh, I mean, it's obvious and it's clear. But today what I wanted to focus our attention on is the problem of shame. Guilt uh, is facing hard times these days. People don't claim to... Uh, have any guilt or struggle much with guilt because they don't believe in any objective ethics or morals and so they have erased guilt or perhaps canceled guilt assuming they can go their way but one thing they can't get rid of is shame and shame is nasty and it's hard to live with and we're going to talk about it today from a number of different angles and see how we can move from shame to glory as people. Hear now the word of the Lord as we begin in Genesis chapter 2 in verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do pray today that your word would go forth from your mouth today and prosper where you send it and accomplish your purposes. Just as rain and snow descend from the heavens and water the earth and cause it to be fruitful and to bring forth bud and life, so too will this word go forth from your mouth today 
and accomplish great and mighty things that lift up the name of Christ and give you great glory. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was Mark Twain who said two things that I really like. He said a lot of things I don't like, but he said two things I like. He said, it's not what I don't understand about the Bible that bothers me. It's what I do understand about the Bible that bothers me. But he also is reported to have said, man is the only creature who blushes and the only one who needs to. But I might argue that when my Cocker Spaniel used to get a really good haircut, he blushed quite a bit. He would uh, huddle in the corner. But in postmodern, post-Christian times, and living in Western culture, where relativism and pluralism reign, guilt has fallen on very hard times. In the minds of many, there is no transcendent ethic. There is no meta-narrative. There is no overarching standard of right and wrong that binds the con consciences of all cultures and ethnicities equally. Some would even go so far to say that there is no truth with a capital T that is absolute truth. I run into these people all the time who the only thing they're absolutely sure of is that there is nothing you can be absolutely sure of. And if you meet a person like that, just go the other way. That's the simplest way to deal with that. But we live in a time in which truth, if there is any, is basically a small t truth. All ethics are based on communi community and social constructions of truth that work for that particular community, but do not possess authority or relevance for any other communities. And so when you talk about guilt in this context, to many people, you get a big yawn. It seems anachronistic and irrelevant. People claim all the time, I don't feel guilty about that, almost brazenly and triumphantly. To talk about guilt just seems to be, I once saw a license plate, a vanity plate, that just about sums up our culture's thinking regarding guilt, which said simply, and since there are children in here, I won't say it, but it said blank guilt, and that means don't admit it, do other things to it. And I thought, there it is, in living color, where most people hang their hats today. People may deny guilt, and they may deny guilt feelings, but that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. There are objective standards, and when we violate those standards, objectively, we are guilty of violating those standards. But just because you deny it, it exists doesn't mean it doesn't guilt shows itself most poignantly in the experience of shame. The gospel has always said the universal crisis in the human race is the crisis of guilt and shame. And so the healing of guilt and shame is really the glory of the good news of the gospel. We can be rele released from shame-based identities and live in the acceptance of the one who matters most. When you look at chapter 2, verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, that is an amazing statement. 
This is right off the hand of God's creative work where he makes man and male and female in his image and in his likeness and he gives them work to do in the pleasure garden of Eden. He tells them to till the soil. He tells them to exercise dominion. He tells them to dig out of the resources of the earth everything put in the earth to develop it and bring it to its fullness and fruition. And so the man and the woman were perfectly equipped to exercise what I still believe in called the cultural mandate. They were here for the purpose of developing the culture. Uh, God's pleasure garden would extend over the entirety of the earth. That's only going to happen now when we have a new earth. But that was the beginning of the book of Genesis, man and woman's place. They were to flourish. And the only way humanity could flourish and could be fruitful was to be naked and not ashamed, which is the polar opposite of guilty and filled with shame. And so the flourishing lost something because another voice entered on the scene. Where did guilt and shame come from? Where did they begin? Well, the Bible describes the birth of guilt and shame in our text. Adam and Eve were living in the sanctuary of God's presence, Coram Deo, that is before the face of God, wide open. There was with them, and there was no need to cover. There was no need to hide. There was no need to fear exposure. They were living in the presence of God before his face with complete intimacy, complete joy in his presence. There was an openness. There was a beautiful expression in the experience of being naked and not ashamed. The nakedness was not merely physical, but was an expression of openness, transparency, authenticity, and intimacy, and ultimately vulnerability. Because you can't really know another personal being without vulnerability. And that's what gets lost here. Because... If I make myself vulnerable before the Lord, what's going to happen to me? He will reject me. He will pour out His wrath upon me. He will bring judgment to me. Adam and Eve had no problem with that in Genesis chapter 2. And so they, were, they had the sensation of being somebody. But a dramatic contrast occurs in Genesis 3 verse 7 after they sinned. The stench of spiritual death was immediately upon them. The serpent's promise of illumination comes true, but it comes true in a way they don't expect, and it undoes the guilty pair. Their eyes were opened not to achieve godness, but to experience something they had never experienced. I don't know how long they lived in Eden before they sinned. The Bible doesn't tell us. But now they're experiencing something that has never invaded their system, and it's called shame. And it's a problem for every single person in this building. The problem of shame is a huge problem. And so it might be helpful here. They lost their glory. They tried to cover it up. But for the first time, they had a sense of vulnerability, weakness, and exposure. Now, it might be helpful here to distinguish between guilt and shame. That is, to disentangle them because they're interwoven. Guilt is an objective, legal, or forensic term. 
It's the language of the courtroom. Where one is measured by the standard and found lacking, one is regarded as guilty. One is either guilty or not guilty. Feeling either is irrelevant. Guilt is the objective legal culpability for transgressing legal boundaries. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and were at that moment guilty of cosmic treason before the Lord of the universe. You see, what they did has such weight because of who they did it to, who they sinned against. On the other hand, shame is the language of experience. Shame is subjective, inside of us, internal, and it also involves an emotional element. I'm in a state of guilt, but I feel and experience shame. And shame shows itself in a person's life in some very unhealthy ways. Sometimes I laugh and almost cry when I look at our woke culture shaming me and you for not being woke. I got mask shamed this week. But don't you worry about it. I stood my ground. I said, no, that's not happening. We're not doing that. We are not doing that. People trying to shame me because they said I, I, I was not considerate of others. I said, you're the one who's not considerate of others because you're telling them a lie. That's what bothered me. But long story short, and I know some people wear them, and I'm not bothered by that, but just don't tell me to wear them. But anyway, I got shamed. I got put on the spot. And uh, I didn't like it, but there's a lot of stuff I don't like that I have to deal with, and you too. One can experience many undesirable symptoms that attend guilt. A fear of vulnerability and exposure. A sense of waiting to be found out. Feeling like an outsider who is disconnected and lonely. Defensiveness, perfectionism, a fear of intimacy and the ability to make commitments, an impairment of friendships or looking to rescue others, getting stuck in very dependent or counter or co-dependent relationships, shyness, feelings of inferiority, worthlessness, anger, jealousy, or judgmental attitude toward others, scapegoating other people as we will see Adam do. Difficulty in accepting forgiveness. Feeling far away from God. He is distant. Feeling condemned. Unworthy. Ugly. Thinking in legalistic ways. Using compulsive behaviors to block painful feelings. Using excuses, rationalization, and lies. Blaming others. Self-centeredness or selfishness. An exaggerated sense of personal flaws or ugliness. A sense of powerlessness. An inability to change. Hopelessness, depression, and even suicidal tendencies. We see these characteristics fleshed out in Adam and Eve as the rest of chapter 3 unfolds. Shame. We don't know how bad the fall was. We don't know. We don't see it. But the fall was a real fall and it wreaked havoc upon the person of Adam and Eve. Uh, one of my favorite terms to use to describe Adam and Eve after, fall, uh, after the fall are glorious ruins. They retain something of the image of God in them, but it's like somebody bombed it out. 
And so their whole life changes. In dealing with shame, our first impulse is to use face-saving techniques so we lie. What did Adam and Eve do in response to their nakedness? Even before God appeared and pursued the guilty pair, they came up with what I call Operation Fig Leaves. They wanted to cover their private parts, so they found the largest leaves in the garden they could, the fig, and they made loincloths or aprons to cover their nakedness and exposure, yet even then they had a choice. They could have owned up to their evil and their unbelief, and they could have sought out God and confessed and uncovered it before Him and plead for mercy, but instead they chose to hide from their nakedness by covering it. Now when you look at the temptation itself, when Satan is tempting Eve, he has the conversation with her. This thing's driving me crazy. That's why I got hung on my belt. All right. You look at the temptation, and you look at the way Satan is called crafty here. And it's the Hebrew word nakash. And nakash either means a burning light or a bright light. But what it meant was that Satan was crafty in that he understood the creature. By the way, you will never on your own win with Satan. He's been around way too long for you. He knows every trick in the book. He's a creature, but he's a higher creature than you. And he tempts the woman by getting her to listen to his conversation. And he begins to probe her doubts. By the way, you can't doubt anything unless you base that doubt on trust in something else. And so the woman begins to doubt what God had said to her. You'll see it, it just is so subtle. When Satan comes to her, he says, you can't eat of any of the fruit of the tree in the garden. How is that fair? And the woman corrects him. She becomes a theologian. But she adds to the script. When she said, neither shall we touch it, indicating what? Well, maybe it is a little severe. And then Satan goes on and says, you will not surely die? Who told you that? That's crazy. So what he tells the woman in so many words is, God doesn't want you to be like him. God doesn't really want you to reach your potential. God doesn't really want you to flourish. And he's deceiving you. And the way to flourish is to listen to me and do what I say. You eat the fruit and you will become as God. You will be able to determine for yourself what is evil and what is good. You will become autonomous, a law unto yourself. And you will no longer need God. What Satan did was so clever, clever because he got the woman to doubt that she was enough. Now there is a very subtle connection here. And this is why I think postmodern culture needs to hear about shame. Because when the woman began to realize through Satan's exchange that she was not enough in and of herself, then she had to look outside of herself to find something or someone to be enough, which is precisely what idolatry is. Is it not? I know that I'm not enough. I know there's a hole in my soul. 
I know that I can't reach my potential. I know that if I could only have this or see this or get this or possess this, then and then only will I become a full, uh, actualized person. And so Eve was suddenly seduced into this idea that I'm not enough, that I have to have something to replace God because he really doesn't want me to have a happy and good life. Now, the guy I don't get is Adam. <laughs> He's a typical passive, uh, aggressive husband, isn't he? He's standing on the sidelines. He's not saying anything. He's not doing anything. And when Eve eats it, she hands it to him. He eats it. When God calls him into account, he says what? The woman you gave me. So whose fault is it? God? Yes. And the woman? Yes. That's our father, Adam. What a guy, huh? But the woman begins to doubt, and that's when idolatry makes its first prominent move into the stage. When she realizes through Satan's lies, she thinks she's not enough. That relating to God, the way she's been relating to God, is not enough. Here we have the first evidence of self-justification in the Bible. When they sewed together the fig leaves, they tried to save themselves and cover themselves. And ever since the default mold of, of the guilty, shameful human heart is the same knee-jerk reaction, a futile attempt to try and justify yourself through idolatry. And what I'm talking about, I, I, you know, they didn't go build a statue of Buddha or anything right away. They didn't have a totem in the garden or anything like that. Because idolatry is far deeper than that. This is the idolatry of the heart. Being disconnected from God and therefore substituting something in creation for God to meet all of the needs. If God will give it to me and I can use him to get it, then okay, I'll be religious. But if God doesn't give it to me, I've got to find it. Because I'm not enough. Because shame tells you you're not enough. Fig leaves are acts of religious piety that are done on our attempt to save face. To tip the scales in God's favor. To have a quid pro quo arrangement with God. How often we use those very things ourselves. I just wasn't myself. I don't know why I did that. Well, it's really not my fault. It's really his, her, or God's fault. Anything we can do to shift the blame from ourselves, we try to deny the need for a solution beyond what we're capable of providing and try to cover our shame with fig leaves, refusing to face the truth of the bad news of our heart's behavior in the light of God's Word. It leads to a life of pretense and its evil twin, hypocrisy. And this is what we see in their fear. Years ago, I was reading a book on Puritan quotations, and one stood out to me. It says, guilt and shame are the parent of fear. Vulnerability. So Adam and Eve ran from God. They knew they had a standing appointment in the cool of the day to walk with God, however that happened, and to commune with Him and to enjoy a relationship with Him. But they decided that day, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. Why? Shame. They're filled with shame. 
They thought the fig leaves they were sowing together would gain the acceptance and approval of God. But are you pretending to be adequately clothed yourself in His presence? Are you defensive when the Holy Spirit brings conviction to you? Do you cover up and lie and make excuses for your sin? Are you hiding behind the fig leaves of religion where you work to put God in your debt, not having seen that all your good works are just filthy rags? At the end of the day, all such action is self-defeating. We cannot remove our shame through moralism. The highest moral achievers in the world are often most burdened by feelings of unworthiness. Getting rid of shame through moral achievement, that is being a good person, is the Achilles heel of graceless religion. I had a good friend who was very good friends with a therapist. And as a pastor, he was struggling with stuff and he just didn't feel anybody in his congregation. He just couldn't trust them. To, to go talk to them about what he was struggling with. So he found a therapist and he went to the therapist and the therapist basically told him, he says, well, what are you even in the business of being a pastor for? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it to atone for your shame and for your brokenness and whatever else? And my friend looked at him and said, yeah, I am. I do stuff like that all the time. He said, but there's something in the Bible called grace. There's a place for people who struggle, who are motivated the wrong way. There's a way to deal with shame. And so after former conversation, many conversations, they came to the conclusion that nobody has pure motives. We all at best have mixed motives. And the worst thing we can do is judge a person because we can't know another person's motives. Let me gut you forever on the idea of judging someone else. It was Thanksgiving in Dallas, Texas, and there was a company, a corporate company downtown, that every year the CEO loved to bring in turkeys on uh, Wednesday evening and hand them out to the various workers. Well, there was a guy working there. He was single. He rode the bus to work back and forth. He made a lot of friends on the bus, and they were not... Uh, white-collar people they were just regular folks and so uh, some of his friends decided to play a trick on him so they made a paper mache turkey and weighted it exactly the same way the frozen turkeys were giving out and when it came his turn they gave him the paper mache turkey he gets on the bus to go home on Wednesday and he sees a homeless family he goes over to the homeless family and he gives them what? The paper mache turkey. What do you think that family thought of him when they opened that up? Just tells you you can never fully judge the motives of another person. Only God can do that. And so in our shame, our number one reaction is to hide. It is to hide. And another solution that was proposed by my favorite therapist, Stuart Smalley, on Saturday Night Live, used to look in the mirror and say, I'm good enough, smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. This is the religion of pop culture as typified by 
some of the leading talking heads of the day, self-congratulatory hype and self-hypnosis. We can recite all of the popular self-esteem slogans like the mantra, I'm okay, you're okay. Truth is, I ain't okay, and you ain't okay. We're not. We need a Savior. Unfortunately, our feelings won't listen. Shame is the way uh, is way too heavy to be ratcheted up by self-hypnosis. We need a radical approach that deals with the deeper hidden issue of shame. The worst of our fears, the fear of rejection and abandonment, the fear that the very sting of death is looming over me. Now, what happens next? God comes to seek out Adam and Eve. Does he come as a father or does he come as a judge? And the answer is yes. But he comes after Adam and he asks Adam, where are you? Now, God is not geographically challenged. He knew where Adam was. He knew his location, but what he, did, what he wanted Adam to do was to come face to face with his own heart. When he's asking him, where are you? He means, where are you in relation to me? And they're hiding in the trees, for heaven's sakes. They're hiding in the trees. And so God continues to pursue. And he asks him basically two more questions. What have you done? And who told you you were naked? Now, as the text finishes out, we finally get the confession of Adam. We finally get the confession of Eve. Sentences are pronounced later on. But here's what I want to say. The first Adam and his beautiful bride Eve were ultimately cast out of the pleasure garden of Eden with flaming cherubim protecting the gate so that they wouldn't partake of the tree of life, eternal life, and eternally be confirmed in a state of shame and guilt and death. Now later on, God provides animal skins for them, which is a symbol of sacrifice. But I want to talk about the second Adam, the second Adam. His name is Jesus. Jesus is both God and man, 100% God, 100% man. But Jesus, as we know, faced Satan, not for one afternoon, but for 40 days, constantly questioned to get himself to doubt he was the Son of God. If you're the Son of God, turn these uh, stones into bread. He was fasting. He was famished. He was on his way to death. And yet Jesus, who, by the way, was both circumcised and baptized, Jesus... <laughs> Meets it with the Word of God. This is what God has said. God's Word is truth. Everything else is a lie. And so he would counter him and counter him that way. But there's something I want you to think about. I want you to think about as we see Jesus' life, and we see the last week of his life, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, anticipating the looming cross that he must experience. He's anticipating the cross. And uh, at the conclusion of his ministry, he asked the Father, pleading with him to remove this cup 
which represented for him not just crucifixion, but all that he would take upon himself, our refusal of relationship, our turning away from the love, our commitment to making our own way in the world, and the shame of the cross would herald and promote and reinforce sin, becoming inexplicably or inextricably intertwined with it. Jesus' crucifixion is emblematic of shame as it is sin. Crucifixion was intended not only to execute victims, but to simultaneously humiliate them. Now, most of the time, if you look at the crucifix, Jesus has a loincloth on. He did not have a loincloth on if he was crucified as everybody else in the history of crucifixion. He hung naked upon the cross. Why? Because he's taking our nakedness, our shame upon himself. Can you imagine how crushing and humiliating it must have been for the Lord of glory to take upon himself our sin and shame? That is why theologians have often said the ugliest creature in the universe was the Lord Jesus Christ hanging on the cross. He took our shame upon him. And he died. He was totally vulnerable to the work God asked him to do. And he received upon himself everything we're too afraid for anybody to find out upon, about us. So we hide it. I once told a guy who had never been in church very much. He came and I said, we ought to come back. Uh, tonight, I said, we have a really great service on Sunday night. And he said, why? And I said, well, we're going to put on the video screen in front of the church the secret thoughts of everybody's heart in the church. And he looked at me and said, really? Are you really going to do that? I've never heard of this. Are you really going to do this? I said, no. <laughs> Thank God, no. But the secrets of our hearts that God knows through and through were placed upon Jesus and he bore in his body our he became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him so the healing of the shame can only take place at the cross why because Jesus took it upon himself so that we can have what what our hearts cry out for more than anything in the world is to be accepted and to be totally vulnerable before one who will love us and know everything about us and never reject us. Never! And that's what we get in Jesus. We're never rejected in Him. Some of you people have done some pretty bad stuff. Some of you have thought even worse stuff. You didn't do it. Maybe you were too scared. But the wonderful good news of the gospel is our shame can be taken away by someone else. Now, it's not presto magic, but it is real. He dies to take our shame upon him. I, I remember Lewis Smeads writing in his book, Shame and Grace. Our struggle with shame leaves us with this nagging question. Is there a viable alternative to shame-induced ideals of secular culture and graceless religion? Is there some kind of third way, a way of dealing with the disgrace of shame? Here's the good news. There is. 
It is called grace. Grace is the beginning of our healing because it offers the one thing we need most, to be accepted without regard to whether we are acceptable, and we know we're not. But He is. He took my shame and gave me His glory, and I will share it with Him forever in the new heavens and the new earth. He gave me His glory. Grace stands for gift. It's the gift of being accepted before we become acceptable. The surest cure for feeling of being an unacceptable person is the discovery that we are accepted by grace of the one whose acceptance of us matters most. Grace overcomes shame, not by overlooking or uncovering a cachet of excellence in ourselves, but simply accepting us, the whole of us, without regard to our beauty or ugliness, our virtue or our vices. You know what, some of you, what's keeping you from Jesus is what John Gerstner used to refer to as your virtues, your damnable good works. You're still thinking you got something to negotiate with him. But the good news of the gospel is the grace, we are accepted by grace wholesale. Accepted with no possibility of being rejected. Accepted once, accepted forever. Accepted at the ultimate depth of our being. We are given what we have longed for in every nook and nuance of every relationship we have ever had. We are ready for grace when we are bone tired of the struggle to be worthy and acceptable. As we have tried too long to earn the approval of every per person important to us, we are ready for grace. When we are tired of trying to be the person somebody has convinced us we have to be, we are ready for grace. When we have given up all hope of ever being an acceptable human being, we may hear in our hearts the ultimate reassurance that we are accepted, accepted by grace, accepted in the Beloved. Jesus takes my record... And not only my record of sin, but even the best good works I've ever done, wrongly motivated. He takes my record and he dies for it. He suffers punishment for it. And he gives me his record and God blesses me for it. He obeyed the law in all of its uh, intensity and scrutiny. He obeyed perfect sterling Obedience. No one could point out sin in him. And he did that for you because you can't do it. You will never do it. And he died for you and took his shame upon himself in order that you could be accepted forever. So by grace we learn that there's good news. After listening to Adam and Eve's pitiful attempts to shift blame from themselves... God rejects their attempts at self-justification. Instead of rejecting them, he provides the appropriate covering for their sin, a covering which looked ahead to the one true covering for shame, the blood of Christ. The book of Hebrews says, Jesus, who for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? Who, what was the joy set before Jesus that caused him to scorn the shame that he knew he was going to bear upon himself for our sin? What was the joy that overcame the shame? It was you. It was me. It was every person who would ever believe in him and trust him and look to him to save them. That's what 
He did. And as he hung naked on the cross, he entered into solidarity and identification with our shame. The greatest pain of the crucifixion was enduring the shame of human depravity and all its foulness and degradation. But he did this for the joy of having you and me, the joy experienced in heaven over every sinner who repents and returns to his father's home, over every lost sheep that is found, over every prodigal who was dead and is now alive again. And so the cross is the gateway to joy. His and ours. For Jesus, who endured the cross, scorning the shame, is now at the right hand of the throne of God. He exchanged his glory and honor for our shame and our sin. Hallelujah. What a Savior. So if you ever feel like you're not worthy to enter God's presence, you are right, but it's not about you. You go in the name of Jesus. You don't pray in your own name. You don't approach God in your own goodness and righteousness. You come in the name of Christ. And in the name of Christ, He regards you as someone holy and unblemished and set apart and beautiful and glorious. He adores us. He truly does. So, if you are carrying upon yourself the heavy burden of shame, Jesus says, come unto me, all you who are burdened. You who are heavy laden, burdened down with shame and guilt. And he promises you, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly at heart. Some of you really, really, really need, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, to come to Jesus and find rest and hope and healing. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opening chapters of Genesis. We thank you that they provide for us a continuing picture forever of what our dilemma is and what our brokenness is. And so, Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that just as you came to seek out the shame-ridden, guilty pair, you still come calling our name today. And we thank you that when we turn and repent, like the prodigal father, you run to us and welcome us home. Now, Father, as we have worshipped you this morning, and we have heard your word, our natural response is, want, is to want to give back to you a portion of that which you have given us. And so as we take this offering, we pray we would give as those who understand and are overwhelmed that we are saved completely by grace and grace alone. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.